Welcome to the New Age Sage podcast. Today's guest is Vanessa Cornell. She is a writer and founder of Nushu, a heart-centered event space for women. We talk about how authenticity is the best thing to find for yourself and the secret code in manifesting all your dreams. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening. I would really appreciate it if you left a review. It helps us and my team go a long way. Thank you so much. Vanessa, I'm going to do this podcast by reading back to you some of the ideas you've written that resonate with me most. I'd love for you to unpack them and we can talk about them together. So the first quote is, if all people were brave enough to share the full range of their human experiences, no one would ever feel lonely again. What do you mean by that? You know, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of hiding and lying that we do without really knowing that we're doing it. And uh, so when I started navigating my inner landscape and trying to figure out who I was. I, you know, went out and I read a lot of books and I learned from a lot of people. And what I realized was the most powerful thing that I ever did was sit with other people and tell them what was going on with me and hearing what was going on with them. And when you sit with people and you realize that your life, your problems, your challenges aren't so different from other people, um, all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm not the only one. And I think there are a lot of people out there thinking, yeah, you know, everyone else's life is perfect, which we know is not true intellectually, but it feels like everyone else's life is perfect, particularly because people are curating their lives, right? People are kind of curating their lives on Instagram and in other ways, but we're also curating our lives on a daily basis with everybody, right? We're only presenting a portion of it, we're not presenting the deep, dark uglies to every person we see on the street or even our friends. And so when you sit with somebody and you kind of say like, all right, I'm going to share the full range of who I am. Then all of a sudden, when you see the full range of other people, you realize, oh, I'm not the only one who has crazy thoughts, dark thoughts, weird thoughts, um, shame around things. And so I think it's that, that courage to really show yourself, to really show who you are. And then when other people have that courage, that makes us realize that, our human experience is so much more similar than it is different. But in our day-to-day -day interactions, it really can feel like, because if everyone's holding their kind of truths back from each other, it can kind of feel isolating. Like, yeah, I'm the only one going through this. If I present it to someone, I'm going to be shamed for it, or I'm going to be judged for it, or people aren't going to like me, or they're going to withdraw my love. And so this idea of being ruthlessly afraid to really share and show who you are, I think is a gift to yourself and a gift to other people um, because that's the only place where connection lives in that place of honesty. And I also think it's uh, completely accurate what you're saying. It's also dependent on the, the friends you surround yourself with. I remember I used to perpetually only talk about surface level things, right? That I couldn't feel inspired to be vulnerable because no one around me knew how to do that. No one could understand that level of authenticity. The minute I shifted people around me who actually could talk about those things with openness, I became, I opened up myself. I think it's something we have to yeah. pay attention to in, in our circles and in our, in our friendships is that can someone accept your depth? Can someone truly sit there and be with your depth? Or are they going to push you aside to talk about, you know, sports or, uh, you know, Real Housewives or whatever? It's it just, it's a difference I've noticed. Has it been true for you? Yeah. What, and what's interesting is it's really, really scary because what happens is a lot of people can't handle it. They feel, they feel a little scared to go to your depth 
right? They're super comfortable with Real Housewives and they're super comfortable with sports because that's not a scary place of vulnerability for them. So that invitation to be vulnerable can make people scared and can scare people off. And so often what happens when people start to really know who they are and want to express it and are just not interested in that small talk anymore is like your circle of friends starts to shrink. I don't know if this happens to you. Oh, for sure. um, but it's, it, but it's, but it's almost like all these people I've been spending time with, I can't even relate to them anymore. Mm-hmm. And they don't really want to be around me because I'm so serious. And I think they're rolling their eyes at me, you know, Oh, Vanessa's so serious. She's all going all woo woo on me again. Uh, but then what happens? And I often tell people like, hang in there, <laughs> hang in there. Cause then your st- circle starts to expand and your circle starts to expand with the people that you can actually have that conversation with. Yeah. How can, how can people handle depth? Let's say, you know, you're in the department of wanting to be there or open yourself up for more deep discussions or hold space for someone. How can you do that as a friend? How can you listen to someone's problems correctly and, and not mess it up or make them feel uh, shamed or, or negative? So the first thing is people will often think that if they want to be a good friend, they got to show that they're listening and then that they have to help, right? Mm-hmm. I want to show that person I love them. So I have to offer some advice or I have to tell that person how it relates and make them feel like, oh, yeah, me too. And so often we jump in too quickly. We just kind of jump in to show them like I'm really listening. I can relate to that or I have some advice or some help to give you. And what people often really need is just a place to express and to just sit and say, I'm listening. I'm listening, but sometimes it doesn't really feel like we're um, helping or we're doing anything. And this sort of focus on like proactive friendship (laughs) or proactive listening rather than this energy of receiving is something we're not really used to. It's not really kind of a Western culture thing to just kind of receive and sit with and be with. We feel like, okay, now what do we have to do? Now, what's the next action step? And so I think this idea of being a person where somebody can come and they know they're not going to be interrupted. They're not going to get advice unless they ask for it. And what I'll tell people is like, ask the question, like, do you want me to tell you what I think? Or do you want me to just listen to you? Do you want me to just hear you out? Do you just need a place where you can share it? And I'm going to be like, I got you. I'm here for you. I'm listening. Let's let's unpack those details a little bit, it's a super important topic. Let's say um, I come to you with uh, relationship stuff that I've been dealing with. In that instance, would you just literally just, just listen and, and be there? Like what, what's the line of, it's a nuanced topic. Do you just sit there and, and wait for them to ask for intervention or do you, you know, energetically send love their way? Like what are you actually doing in those instances if a friend comes to you in distress? Yeah. So there's so many ways of showing somebody that you care and that you love them. First, the first thing is like making the time, right? Making the time, like maybe someone comes to you in distress, but also over time, you've indicated to them that they're important to you. They're a priority to you. You see someone in distress and you say, hey, if you need an ear to listen, I'm here. So they come to you knowing that you're available and you're there for them to hear. And then I think the most important thing is asking that question, Hey, do you want me to, you know, tell you what I think or do you want me to just listen? And I also really think that questions are so much more valuable than answers. Right? So if you're telling me about a relationship, a question might be something like how do you feel when you're in that situation? Do you feel like that's a 
you know, do you feel like that's a balanced situation? Do you feel angry about any of that rather than telling you? Because I believe people kind of know deep down inside, right? A lot of times in relationships or jobs, when things aren't going well and they leave it, they're like, oh, I finally lost this job. But you ask them, for how long did you know? And when I say no, I don't mean no in the mind. I mean, like, no deep down, that sort of gut knowing. How long did you know that you needed to leave this job? And then your mind did all the pros and cons and the machinations and figured out the justifications. And so I think sometimes we really don't know in relationships and we're really confused. But I think my job as a listener, as a friend, is to help you figure out your inner knowing, not give you my knowing. Because I don't know what's right for you in your relationship. I can't tell you what to do. I can only help you by listening and asking questions to figure out what you need to do. Yeah, that's such a good point. To summarize it, what I'm hearing from you is that, that if someone comes to you, you know, neurotically anxious about an issue, and that they're very detached from the inner knowing or inner uh, in tuning into what they actually need, that the friend, the job of the friend is to through space and, and love and presence to help un- clear the neuroses in, in the in the in the mind, the cobwebs of the mind, to help the person unpack and find their core truth through asking the right questions. I'm going to trans- yeah, transition. I, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's one more layer to it. There's also this like permission to honor what you need and what you know. You know, it's like as your friend, what I want for you is to have peace and ease in this relationship. And so even though we sometimes kind of have the inner knowing, we don't feel like we have permission to to follow that, to do what's best for us, to honor what we need and what we know. And sometimes a friend's job is to say, you know, this is what I wish for you. This is what I hope for you. This is what I think you deserve. This is what I think you um, are worth. This is what I think, this is what I see in you. This is how I want people to treat you. And, and that, I think, is another important piece in sort of being a good friend to someone, being there for somebody to support them. What's an example, an example of that line? Like um, what you're saying is that there's a line here of, of um, like when you are overstepping in the sense of, I think you pointed to earlier, when you analyze someone's issues for them or you present solutions to them. What's that line between doing that and also offering reassurance as to, let's say I was in an abusive situation or in a bad job and me saying, hey, this isn't in your, in your highest interest. You're worth more. Like, what's that line between, you know, giving them or what we think is best for them and also reassuring them as to what they're worth? Yeah. So um, I'll give you an example with one of my kids who's in a relationship that's n- not super healthy. <laughs> you know, this person's yep. not super nice to my kid. And so... One way to say it is you got to break up with this person. You got to end the relationship, right? That's telling my kid what to do. The other situation is how do you feel? Do you think that, how do you feel when you're this person? Do you think that's what relationships are supposed to feel like? And what I want for you is to feel cared for, safe, loved in a relationship, to not feel like you're walking on eggshells. That's what I want for you in a relationship. That's what I think you deserve in a relationship. Is that how you feel in this relationship? But I know, and I think people listening may know, especially with a mother, right? If I tell you, you got to break up with somebody, it's not helpful. You have Mm -hmm. to decide for yourself. 
You have to know for yourself. But to say, this is what I want for you. This is what this could feel like. And you deserve to feel that way. You deserve to be treated with respect. You deserve to be treated with love. You deserve to be treated with kindness. This is what you deserve to feel. And then creating a little self-awareness of, is that what this feels like for you? Mm. How does it feel like for you? Because sometimes we don't really focus on it. Sometimes we don't really even, we know it's not good, but we don't really take the time to say, okay, how, how am I feeling with respect to this? You know, how do I, where do I feel it in my body? And how am I receiving what's happening between me and this other person? So that's an example, like a real life example of a conversation I've had a number of times with my kid. Yeah. So you're guiding someone to realize their, their best uh, decision or best interest through like this. You're guiding them to, to be aware of their best solution in a way. And they can only do that when you've reminded them to be in touch with themselves. How does this apply to, it's similar in, in the sense of finding a healer or someone to help you. What are some of the, the non-negotiables for that relationship that are similar to this, to friendship and overstepping? It, it's the same thing, right? It's like, I think of healers as mirrors and doors. Healers do a lot of mirroring back to people, creating self-awareness, creating frameworks, methodologies of self-awareness. Let me help you see yourself more clearly through my guidance. And doorways. Let me show you paths that are available to you. But at the end of the day, everybody sees themselves in the mirror and has to decide for themselves. And everyone has to walk through those doors themselves. And so somebody who's going to give you the answers in the same way that I say to my kid, break up with this girl. You know, I can't tell you how many times. And by the way, I love therapy and I love therapists. So this is not anti-therapy in any way. I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, yeah, my, my, therapist's re- my therapist really thinks I should. My therapist told me to. And in that phrase, somebody's saying, but I don't want to. And I'm not convinced. So you can't tell people what to do. I mean, you can, but that's really unhealthy if they just do what you tell them to do. You have to help them see it for themselves to know what's true for them. And that's a process of empowerment where, just like my kid, where I say, I am empowering you to see clearly the situation for yourself, to honor what you need, and to find the strength inside to pursue and honor what you want and what you need in life. And so it's the same with healers, right? People who say, I have the answer. Let me give you the answer. Do what I tell you to do. They're not healing anything. (laughs) People who say, let me help you learn about yourself and become empowered to pursue what is true for you. That, to me, is a responsible healer. And there's a lot of really tricky dynamics in there. There's a lot of self-awareness, I think, that healers have to bring in order to stay really clean because it's very, very rewarding to the ego Mm -hmm. when someone says, wow, you changed my life. You told me to do this and you changed my life, right? There's a lot of that dynamic happening. And so... When people say that to me, they don't really say it to me in that way. Or when people give me credit, I say, I didn't do, I didn't do anything. No, it's not that I didn't do anything, but I didn't do the work. You did the work. You saved yourself. You know, you walked through that door. It it wasn't me. And so it's this idea of um, 
helping someone access the inner knowing that's always been there, mm-hmm. that exists already, rather than giving someone some external knowing that they then download. Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, I was 19, I had a guru so I was 19. And what bugged me when I was 19 is that whenever I needed immediate answers over a situation or I needed immediate guidance or, or help, he would tell, he would basically like force me to make a decision even, even if it was wrong. He'd basically guide yeah. me inside myself to become aware of what was in my interest. And it'd be wrong most of the time. And then, you know, now that I'm 24 and I made, I made horrible decisions at 19, I was like, why the fuck do you do this? He was like, you wouldn't have been able to be as autonomous in your own decision making if I didn't let you fuck up all the time. But I was there to pick yeah. up the pieces for you. But what happened when I was 19 is that because it was taking so long for me to, to become a higher self, I met, I then went to, you know, the traditional Western psychiatrist therapist, which is like solution right now. You know, you're feeling anxious about this woman or this thing, break up with her. Here's a Xanax. You're good. And then that worked for about a month until I started going crazy. But that story of mine just proves to the fact that you can only be healed if you find the healer in yourself. And if you only can be the best version of yourself, if you access the highest version of you through learning how to make your own choices and decisions. How is, has that been your experience when you seek help? Like what's, what's the best help you've been given in order to be who you are now? Yeah. So I I had a similar experience. And so you started at 19, I started at 36. Mm. So I, um, had five kids in six years and was, you know, you know, really on the track of just having kids and doing what I was supposed to do. And I was an overachiever and I did the whole thing. And I was 36 years old and I just cracked. I just cracked. Couldn't do it anymore. I was doing everything that was expected of me. And the crack was difficult and dramatic, but it opened me up to sort of saying, you know, what is the life I want? Who am I? What do I even like anymore? I didn't even know what I liked anymore because I'd been so focused on other people. And so when I started, I got really, really curious. And I was talking to a lot of people and my, my wisest teachers would say to me, Vanessa, I've got nothing for you. I've got nothing. You know, I have these big questions. I have nothing for you. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta sit on it. You gotta meditate on it. You're a smart woman, but I can't tell you. I have no answers for you. And and I think that the instinct is to look for answers because we're especially when we're in that place of sort of rift that dark night of the soul where we don't know we're like it's so challenging to that to be in that place of unknown that we're like somebody give me the answer you're a guru you must know the answer tell me help me to relieve this feeling i have by giving me the answer and that's why i think like astrology and psychics and mediums are so popular because people are like just tell me just tell me the answer so i don't have to look for it like let me shortcut people are always looking for shortcuts and so all my best teachers said, I have, I have nothing for you. I don't have any answers for you. Um, and that was difficult to take. But what I realized was that's the only truth. No one has any answers for you. Not a single one. They're all, they're all inside and they're all different and they're all unique to you. Like nobody can tell me what my truth is, what my purpose is on this planet in my lifetime, except for me. And if they do, and if they pretend to know in my opinion, they're a fraud, you know? And so that was kind of the process of, of trying to figure out, all right, 
now that I'm now that I've become insanely curious about the workings of my human mind and heart and spirit, how can I simply dedicate my life to that inquiry and see where it takes me? So rather than starting with the, let me figure out what I have to do and how to get there. Let me figure out who I am and spend my whole life figuring out who I am. And then what I do becomes really, really obvious to me based on understanding who I am just becomes really clear. Oh, I have to do this or I want to do this. It's actually more, I want to do this. Oh, that mm-hmm. sounds exciting and, and interesting to me. So yeah, I had a similar experience where, um, and I think I sought these people out because I knew deep inside that if somebody told me the answer that um, I knew it was off, I was like, mm, I'm not sure that's right. I'm not sure that's right. That doesn't, that doesn't feel right because it's not coming from me. And so, yeah, it's just been a, a process of um, becoming more and more clear about what's true for me. Mm-hmm. This sounds counterintuitive, but it's a skill I realize is the most important skill to have. And you touched upon it is that, you know, we live in a culture that rewards infinite knowledge or, or always having the answers to things, you know, and that's how you do well in school, memorizing certain things. But the skill I realize is that the most important thing is to be cool with not knowing, like not, not knowing something yeah. and just sitting in that, and that confusion, that silence for a while until you get what you need to know. You know, we live in, for example, you know, we have a, it sounds stupid, but let's say I, 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 we have these things in our mind that we Google, Google immediately to find an answer to. Sometimes I'll yeah. just not do that. I'll just, you know, just, just not doing that skill of not knowing something almost, almost saves your process of becoming yourself. Cause when you have that hit, that, that trigger to need to know something and you reach out to a, to a guru or a master or therapist or your friend who's egoistic in some ways, then that person dictates the course of your life based on what they don't know about you. It's just, it's a, it's a thing that doesn't make sense to me. So now when I don't know something, I'm just, I sit with it. I sit with it for a while. Usually it comes to me. When it doesn't, then I'll, you know, I'll seek out and, and, and see things. But as I've been the same for you, just getting, getting cool with yeah. and comfortable with just being like, I don't know this. And I, 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 I'm, I'm cool with not knowing it until it comes to me. And how has that change affected you? Yeah, I have this process that I do where I'm trying to figure something out, you know, something big. You know, do I go this way or this way in my life? Or what's something, you know, there's something that bothers me about this relationship, but I can't figure out what it is. Is this person good for me or not good for me? Should I be friends with them or not? And it's something that starts as like an inkling in my body. And I'm like, I I just can't figure it out. I don't know the answer. And so it came to me at one point that the problem was my focus on figuring out was exactly the problem. Because the figuring out, you know, writing a list of pro and cons is like firmly in the logical mind. It's firmly in the sort of thinking mind. And what happens when you're in the thinking mind is you're cutting out all of the information from your body and you're cutting out all of the information from your heart. And so I started this process where I would, when there was something big that was weighing on me that I had to figure out, I would just ask the open question. Kind of like a prayer, you know, I would kind of ask the open question And then I would maybe sit in meditation and then I would release the need to know the answer. I would just say the important part is asking the question. The important part is knowing that there's something off. There's something out of attunement. There's something not in my truth about this. And I don't know what it is, but I'm just going to ask the open question. And inevitably in a week or a day or a month or six weeks, all of a sudden it would just, it would just poof become clear to me. And I think the reason was because I was accessing kind of all parts of my intelligence, 
not just the sort of logical, linear thinking parts of my intelligence, the sort of inner knowing parts of my intelligence. And by allowing those to come online, whereas most of my training, as you mentioned in school, right, like was the logical mind. That's maybe why I couldn't figure it out because that's how I'd been trained to figure it out. And that question and that answer didn't live in that space. And so I, I do this all the time. I ask the open question. And then the hard part is you have to really believe it when you say, I'm okay if the answer doesn't come to me. And it doesn't matter when. I don't need to know. I just need to acknowledge. It's almost like it's not even an asking of a question. It's an acknowledging of some truth that's still a little fuzzy and directing your sort of heart's attention to that, that place of lack of clarity and saying, when it becomes clear to me, I'm open to receiving that information. Yeah, but in, but this, in this book I was reading, I made the analogy that when you need a solution to something and you're in that frantic needing state, you're basically fishing into a tiny pond with like these like frantic yeah. fish. But when you, the analogy is when you create space to be still and, and meditate and, you know, forget about things for a while and just go into yourself, you start fishing into the deep well of your unconscious mind, your subconscious, the collective unconscious and, and the whatever space is around us. And in that space of, of just clearing out the known frantic mind, you access the truth. Mm-hmm. So in that, in that massive space, you can go deeper into the, the, the well of your being and access your, your truth. Um, yeah. I, I actually had a, uh, Chinese, I, I speak Chinese and I, I learned Chinese in high school and Chinese is a lot of memorization. And I had this really wise Chinese teacher in high school. He had those kind of bodhisattva eyes. And he would say, if you can't remember something, you have to look in the corner of your brain. And so it's like when you're directing your attention directly at something, you can't remember it. When you relax your brain and you allow yourself to like look obliquely into the corner of your brain. So I actually use this all the time when I'm trying to think of people's names or little things in life. I'm like, you have to look in the corner of your brain, you know, which is a, is a tiny little part of what you're saying. What you're saying is more profound, but it's, it's kind of that same thing where we're, we've overtrained the sort of aggressive thinking part of our mind and undertrained the other parts of our intelligence. So speaking to you, you seem like you have a, I know you have a high, high intellectual capability. Having that ability in yourself, what's been the journey for you realizing that your ability to, to feel and sense something is more powerful or as powerful as your thinking mind? How has that transition been to you? And is it that way? Have you noticed that shift? Yeah. I mean, I, th- here's the thing. It's not zero sum, you know, it's not zero sum. It's not like you sacrifice one in favor of the other. It's mm-hmm. just enriching. Yep. And so being able to um, be in my intellectual mind and, and, and think about things while being in the sort of heart brain, the gut brain at the same time, they interplay and they interact. And so just like, you know, masculine and feminine energies, it's not one or the other, it's, it's balance and integration, it's kind of balance and integration. So there's no part of it that feels like the intellectual mind is being denied. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's just adding richness to the conversation. It's adding richness to the knowing. It's adding richness to the clarity. And they inform each other. You know, and so what I do, you know, I run women's groups. And what I'll say is we're using words. We're using the intellectual mind to dip right below the level of consciousness. So I'll ask a prompt 
And I'll ask people to think about something that maybe they hadn't thought about. And often the responses I'll get will be, oh, I hadn't realized that that's how I felt about something. Or, oh, isn't that interesting? So these are all things that are already inside. This is our all, all knowing that's already inside. And we're using words in the intellectual mind to dip down below the level of the conscious mind, to dip into the heart space. So they're all interacting with each other. It's not really either or. It's not one or the other. It's just kind of creating an awareness that there's more than just one way. Yeah, there's more than point. just one path. Yeah, Carl Jung, uh, I studied study Jung in psychology, and Carl Jung uh, labels the, the psyche of the intellect as like the the heroic adventurer who who guides you into the into the unconscious into your body that you kind of need the egoic structures of the mind to help guide you the sword of the intellect to go into your unconscious to discover what's hidden that we would be able to find uh, you know the the trauma or the hidden wounding or the parts of ourselves that were oppressed if we didn't have the the guide of the of the intellect to, to go into um shifting gears a little bit you said your your mom of was it five, five kids you said how many kids yeah Five. Five. How has that been for you in the sense that, you know, you're, you're on the path like me and many people doing this work. How has it been for you, you know, constantly shifting yourself or creating space to process your emotions and be a human healing alongside raising, raising five kids? Yeah. So first of all, my kids are my best teachers. And the work that I'm doing for myself is the single biggest gift I'm giving my kids. So, yeah, I'm doing it totally inside of alongside and with my mothering and my raising of the kids, right? My awareness, my humanness, my messiness, it doesn't happen over here. And then my mothering happens over here. I'm not doing my work on myself. And then I show up as a different person for my kids. It's completely intertwined with my work with my kids. And so even my self-awareness, my awareness of my emotions, when I'm stressed when I'm triggered. I actually speak this stuff out loud to my children because I think that mm. that's the best way to model and help them understand what's going on in me. So I, I have this example. I went into my son's room and he's a really messy guy and I'm a really tidy person, you know, and it just makes me crazy when I go into his room and it's so messy and I understand people are different. He doesn't care that it's a mess, but I kind of do. So I went, went into his room and it's a total mess and I start yelling you know, I'm not really a yeller, but sometimes I'm like, you know, I'm just dry, you're driving me crazy. And then I realize in myself, oh, this has nothing to do with him in his messy room. It has to do with six other things that happened today that put me on edge that I'm stressed about. And so as I'm yelling at him, I'm saying, I'm really, really sorry that I'm yelling at you for your messy room. It actually has nothing to do with your messy room, it has everything to do with all of these things that happened to me today. And I'm on edge and this puts me on edge and I'm completely overreacting and I apologize, but this is the thing that put me over the edge and it actually has nothing to do with your messy room and sorry. And he looked at me and he was like, it's okay, mom. Sorry you had a bad day, you know? And so it's like, I'm acting out with my children my own self-awareness of my imperfection, my, you know, humanness. Uh, but I'm also bringing that awareness to my kids where if some of my kids do something and I'm upset about it, I have to think to myself, is it them or is it me? Is there something they're doing that's wrong? Or is this activating something inside of me? 
that is going to make me react in a way that's not actually for their benefit, but is soothing some old wound of mine or some fear of mine. And so this awareness about what your children trigger in you is, I think, one of the most important things for parents to do, because otherwise you're acting from a totally unconscious place. You're acting from an unconscious place when they trigger you, and you're acting from an unconscious place when you're guiding them. You know, at the extreme, you've got parents who are living out their unlived lives through their children, pushing them into activities or careers that they don't have any interest in um, because of the unconscious desi- like desire or unlived life of the parent. Um, but I also think that that, you know, parents' jobs is to, a parent's job is to help a child self-actualize, is to help a child figure out who they are and go effectively through relationships and figuring out how to be in the world, how to go be that person in the world successfully. And if peop- if, if parents haven't self-actualized themselves, they're then putting all of their assumptions, all of their desires onto their children and preventing them from self-actualizing. So I think that the amount of work that goes into parenting is huge. But if we only focus on helping our kids and not helping ourselves, we could be steering them in the wrong direction. The first part of what you said really hit my heart, that a lot of what I was missing is as a kid, I think most kids do, is that my mom was very emotionally erratic. I'll love to her. Um, she would come in and just take things out on me. And in many ways, my dad did sometimes, but I think all parents do that. It's okay. But what was missing is that I thought it was me. I thought that I was doing something to cause that. And who I was in that moment was not worthy of love. And I changed myself, my identity to be someone worthy of love. And there's this constant shape shifting in myself to be someone else that I wasn't. And that's, you know, a core part of my trauma. And when I'm, you know, my heart is saying to you is that this part, that's probably the best thing you can give your kids is that, is that most, I do believe most childhood trauma comes from kids being, had, had their anger, the parents' anger taken on them and they have no idea why. And then just like you saying that, you know, I'm going through this, that, that trauma's gone. It's just, oh, you know, she's going through something. I'm worthy of love. I'm, I'm okay as I am. Yeah. And that's the same for relationships too, right? And romantic relationships, exact same thing. And I've noticed in myself, right? In the past when I would castigate my partner, and leave it there and, and dip out, or she would get pissed at me and slam the door. I would then go back to the childhood pattern of, I I did something to her. And I'm not worthy of love. The, the the way you fix that immediately is just saying, oh shit, you know I was taking this out on you. And the faster you get it, that's a skill, right? The faster you get out of that, the better that relationship becomes, right? Sometimes it can take an hour or two, but the better you get doing it immediately, like you said, it, it makes a huge difference. So I just wanted to, to to. Yeah, and and I think you know, and I think if there's one thing parents take away. Um, it's interesting. We think about apologies in ro- romantic relationships, but we often don't think about apologies for parents to children, right? You, you think like in a romantic relationship, you do something, you apologize to each other, but they're probably parents who have never apologized to their children. And that one thing, getting kind of practiced at that, being like, when you feel, you know it. You know it when you did it, right? Because you feel that shame. You feel that guilt inside of you. And to then go to that step of repair to say, hey, you know, I'm sorry I yelled. I probably shouldn't have yelled. Or I'm sorry I took that out on you. I probably shouldn't. 
that's so key because that's the message that it wasn't you. It wasn't your fault. That, that wasn't justified. Um, but also a lot of like grace and love to parents for making those mistakes mm-hmm. because it's part of the game, right? I mean, for sure. so many, you, you can actually, your kids can tolerate so many mistakes if you acknowledge them. If you just acknowledge them, um, the goal is not to not make mistakes. That's just impossible. And to not overly beat yourself up about those mistakes, because that also doesn't help, you know, because it's hard. It's hard to be a parent. Um, but just that one thing that you said, just that one thing about saying like, hey, I blew up at you and, you know, sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry I did that. I wish I hadn't. Really goes a long way. Cool part too is you grew up, you know, my, my, Dad's a little older now, you know, and, and the woman I'm seeing too. You can also you can also request in a certain way that language, you know. If, for example, you know, my my father is like, you can't super well, but there's one tiny thing that, he's, that he was doing that was affecting my relationship with him. And just saying that is that you know when when you do this thing, it affects it affects us. Or you know, a partner, my partner, it says something to get to get mad at me. And she says. You know, oh, sorry, but then I, 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 my, my inner child, I have to hear in that moment that, that, you know, she still loves me the same. And just kind of requesting to the person that we love or care for, even if you're an adult or a kid, just, you know, that's what I was missing as a, as a kid, that I would feel that need for amends and, and apologies. Mm-hmm. And I'd do what I can to get it, but I'd get further, you know, castigation and, and mistreatment. So, you know, you also have the power to, as an individual, request those words from someone to say, hey, I'd really appreciate it if you were to say this to me, you know, next time you do that. Hey there, I'm going to give you a break to digest all of this amazing information. And in this break, if you like what you're listening to, please rate and review the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. And I think it's kind of full circle to the first quote you read and the first question you asked, right? It's like, how do we combat the loneliness? How do we create that connection? And it's this sort of truth and clarity, truth and clarity, honesty and clarity. It's like, here's who I am and what I need. Let me tell you who I am and what I need. And then hopefully if the person is capable, they say, oh, now that I see that more clearly, let me give you what you need. And that's kind of this basis for relationships where we can be um, loving and honest and create not just in ourselves clarity and truth, but clarity between, you know, how does this work? Who are you? I, w- I really want to see who you are and know mm-hmm. who you are and know what you need and vice versa. And it's in that, that you can create kind of the deepest connections. Yeah. One of the, uh, this is a question we all deal with, you know, what, what is God? What is his higher power? I try and create a framework that is most useful to me. And what I come to, you know, not to go fully left field to bring it back here is that I think a lot of divinity is truth. Like whatever is existing in this moment, this pen, you, yeah. whatever is to me is, is divinity. It just is, is the truth. So for my duty to divinity is to be as true as possible to myself in situations. So whenever I'm, you know, in an argument or, or talking to someone, or you even like I have my duty is to be as authentic and true as possible. And the more I follow that yeah. religion per se, the more I've gotten happier, better friends, that this, this devotion to truth, as you say, will clear everything. And truth isn't just, you know, two plus two is four, or, you know, uh, Obama was president, what, what year? It, truth is also, how, the, the most true thing is how you're feeling. That, that's the deepest yeah. truth. And the more you honor that truth in connection, that's how the loneliness dissipates and goes away. Yeah, that's where we, we, we're going to start the same religion. I'm, this, I'm on board. 
that is my only religion. If people talk about words that they use to describe the extent of things that are yet unknown to us, right? God, universe, nature, source. To me, it's also truth, that which simply is to be discovered, not to be manipulated or changed, but just to, to be just to be discovered and aligned with. And that is that is literally my my devotion is that truth. And it's really fun and interesting because that truth has so many layers. Mm-hmm. You know, that truth can be contradictory. You know, I can't stand my kids and I love my kids at the same time. You know, I hate this person. I love this person at the same time. I, um, you know, all of these kind of dualities that seem like they're conflicting truths, but are actually coexisting truths. And that is the sort of capital T larger truth. So there are so many different um, interesting layers to it. But to me, the only question I ever ask myself is what is true? What is true about how I feel? Yeah, that's the core of Buddhism in a sense. You know, Buddhism is just teaching you, which I follow mostly, is, is just getting in somatic accordance with what is. That, that's a helpful framework for me in my mind, that whatever yeah. life presents to me, that just is life, my work is to accept it as reality. Whatever resistance in my core, my somatic being, towards that objective truth is the work. That if I can't accept mm. this person not liking me or this thing failing, that the work in that moment is to get to a place where I, I accept things being true. Validating your point, that there can be two things true at the same time, right? My mind can see that something is true. My body can can be in a place where I can accept that truth, and that feeling is true. And honoring that feeling is also is also a big a big part of the truth. What's what's things the, what, the only the ahead. only yeah. part the only part that sometimes I feel like people skip over is that they feel like somehow the feelings mm-hmm. that feel out of alignment with the truth are less true. The feelings, you know the. The, even the feeling of frustration or rejection at what's true has to be denied in order to be in accordance with the truth, but actually it has to be accepted as part of it, right? Your reaction to and all of the things that seem like they're not aligned are just as true at the same time, you know? It is both true that this is unchangeable, and it is also true that I'm raging against the fact that it's unchangeable. Mm-hmm. Those are both, those both have to be equally honored. And I think sometimes we think that the less desirable truths need to be squashed in mm-hmm. favor of the ones that feel, um, you know, more love and light. Give me an example of uh, one that was especially true for you when you were experiencing an extreme uh, duality in yourself of seeing something being objectively true, whether it be, you know, losing someone or uh, a friend being mad at you and then your body was like, nope, I can't, I can't accept this and how you manage that duality. Yeah. I don't know if I have a, I have like a big example, but I have an all the time example. Right. You know, I have a, I have a, you know, I know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing in the world. I know that I'm following my truth and my path. I know that I have a lot to offer. And at the same time, I have so much doubt. Oh, I should have said that differently on that podcast. And, oh, you know, I messed that up and nobody wants to listen to me. And this book that I'm writing, do I really need to cut down trees to print this book? And so those things sit in me all the time. 
constantly. Those voices sit in me all the time. And I think I'm definitely not alone in that, right? All those, of us, those doubting all of us, voices. Yeah. All of us, all of us. And so to me, it's like, okay, doubting part of you. I'm not going to try and push you away or say like, you're wrong or try and convince myself. I'm going to like bathe in you. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to say, this is the part of me that cares so much that it questions. This is the part of me that wants so much to hone my craft, to do it well, that it questions. This is the part of me that questions. I love the part of me that questions because there are some people out there, you know, if, if you want to convince yourself that you should put a book out, just like read a bunch of books and then you read those and you'd be like, oh yeah, mine's pretty good. You know, it's like there are people out there putting stuff out with conviction with conviction and with confidence. And so I have that conviction and confidence, but I also have the doubt and I like the doubt doubting part. It's the part that's keeping me honest. It's the part that's keeping me questioning and keeping me um, kind of humble, keeping me humble at the same time as the part that believes that what I do matters that what I offer is important and valuable in the world. Um, and so for me, it's sort of a constant dance and it's really, really interesting to sort of really get to know both of those parts of me and try to fully embrace and own both of those parts of me at the same time. I really appreciate you saying that because I've, I've been actually sitting with this in myself that I use that, I've, I've used, I'm going to actually change it now after having this conversation, I've used that doubt as a training partner, in a sense, I've heard that voice come up. It's, you know, it's, it's, I, I used to see it as a villain in everyone's story that overcoming that voice is the heroic journey. And, but the problem with that is, is now I'm realizing that I would abuse that voice, right? That whenever that voice would be like, don't work out, don't do this. You know, you, you can't lift that thing. You can't say that to this person. I would be like, fuck you. I'm doing this shit. Like it would be like this, 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 it would drive this need in me to prove it wrong. It was, it was a battle. It was literally a war. This thing would say, yeah. You can't do this. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm doing that. And it would lead to results in the matrix we live in where I'd like, I'd, I'd get things, I'd accomplish things and, and be, you know, strong and, and manly, et cetera. But I was shaming myself that, that, that what you're saying now is that that's a piece of me. It lives inside me. Yeah. And if I'm treating it as if it's a, a villain or a negative being or this dark entity, I'm hating myself. I'm judging myself. Did you yeah. ha initially have that treatment that I'm talking about? inside yourself and yeah. if you if you did yeah. how is the new way you've gone about it now been different inside your inside, inside your being yeah so the biggest the biggest shift has been rather than trying to make it go away through shaming because shame doesn't work you know shame doesn't work to make something go away shame doesn't work to change behavior rather than treating it with shame and trying to make it go away i i approached it with curiosity and i said what have you got for me what do you have to teach me what information do you have for me? What is this part of me trying to tell me? Because the part of you that's trying to tell you, like, you know, don't work out might be telling you, you know, I'm really tired. I need to rest. Or it might be telling you, you know, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to measure up. And so I'd rather not do it in the first place than go for it. You know, I don't know what the message is in that part of you. But we don't know until we ask it. We don't know until we say, okay, I hear you, doubt. What have you got for me? And then when that message comes through from the doubt, then we get to decide, I hear you, but you're not serving me. I'm going to choose something else. Or 
I hear you. Thank you for that information. It's actually helpfully, I'm gonna, helpful. I'm going to integrate that information and what my choice is. But if we're just pushing it away, we don't get the benefit of the information from that. And we don't metabolize it. So we don't kind of say like, I hear the information that you're giving me. And I'm going to make a choice based on that, based on really seeing that clearly. And so if we ignore it, it's just going to keep knocking at our door louder and louder and louder until we listen to it. But if we listen to it and we integrate it, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, thank you. I've been heard. I've been heard. And I don't need to keep knocking on your door. I don't need to keep getting louder and louder and louder. Um, And so it's those unconscious sort of, sometimes they're fears. Sometimes they're truths, you know? Sometimes they're fears that we need to say, I acknowledge you fear, but I'm going to do it anyway. And sometimes it's like, oh, I acknowledge you and I actually need to change what I'm doing, right? So, But we don't know until we listen to them. If we don't listen to them, they will still be there. They will continue to puppeteer us unconsciously. And we lose the benefit of the information and actually might make decisions or do things that are not in our best interest. And then we're like, I don't understand why I can't stop doing that. Or I don't understand why I can't make this change. And so all of these changes we want to make, battling that part of us, part of the reason sometimes we can't make those changes is because we're not willing to acknowledge the other side of it, the sort of um, the dirty voices that we don't like to hear because we've been told like, those are bad, put those away. Yeah. And um, this just came to my mind that I think you touched upon it, that that voice we're talking about, the voice of doubt and resistance, that for people who it's loud for, it's actually beneficial. Because I think a lot of these gurus or charlatans or scam artists or, you know, narcissists, they don't have that voice. They, they just have just yeah. deleted that voice of, of doubt or uh, a need to be humbled. And, and when you ha- don't have that voice in you, you end up doing bad things and you're power driven unconsciously. So what I've also realized and helped me re-see again is that that loud voice in me is, is this beautiful reminder to, to humble myself, to remove the illusion of separation of I'm better than I'm different. The more that I can use the, the, the light in that voice to be like, to humanize myself, to, to realize, oh, I'm, I'm just a human going through this thing. And actually deleting that voice will lead to probably the worst egoistic sides of me to just hurt people and and gain financially or gain power. I also think it's really important for teachers, spiritual teachers, leaders, people like you to talk about that voice, to acknowledge to other people that there's doubt. Uh, Because I think that people perceive people on a spiritual path who are now teaching and see it as their work in the world to guide other people on a spiritual path as having no doubt. And I think that that's not helpful because then people, when they have their own doubt, think I must be doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. I want to be like that person who no longer has any doubt. And I think that's really misleading and dangerous. And so when I think about people who are, who are teaching and teaching responsibly, I think part of it is to proactively express your own messy humanity to other people so that they don't perceive that you don't have that part of them that they have, because everybody does, by the way, everybody has it. And so people are like, well, I have this messy part, but this person that is leading me does not. And I think that that's um, misleading and, and discouraging to people. You know, that's one of the reasons I started doing this is that mm-hmm. I think people, in my experience of things that have done the best for me 
even you know numbers wise or videos gone well it's not me teaching it's me being messy it's me expressing mm-hmm. my, my deepest vulnerabilities and you ask i ask why is that why are people reacting so much to that to make them feel seen right like, like if you see someone you respect you kind of idolize the right word being completely messy and expressing themselves in a certain way it makes them feel better but on a different level what it helps you do as a person is the more you put your mess out there for everyone to see the more you can be authentic when you start seeing that everyone on my social media public social media my, my shit is out there mm-hmm. i can there's no skeletons I, I can be myself how's it been for you have you noticed a shift in yourself the more you just because i've your social media is what i liked about it is you just sometimes post what you're going through you know human humanness is messy how has that shifted in you? How is what's the effect of you putting on social media exactly what you're experiencing in humanity? Yeah, so it's interesting. Sometimes people think that when I post on social media, it's to make other people feel better, right? Oh, this really helped me. Like, I really appreciate Vanessa. I, I get this a lot. I really appreciate Vanessa. You putting into words and putting out there what a lot of us are feeling or going through. And so you would think that that was kind of my mission to do that, but in fact, it wasn't. It was like a personal practice because I actually grew up a kind of a liar. Same you know, here. I was kind of, yeah, I was kind of really taught, like in my family, we didn't share anything outside the family. We were all about the white lies. And then also just in my conditioning, it was like I learned very early on that, and I was really, really good at it, how to like shape shift and adjust myself to make everyone happy. Right. So that was just like a whole package of lies. And so, I did it for me, right? I was like, the only way that I'm going to unlearn what I learned for decades is to practice over and over and over and over and over again telling the truth. So I decided, like, my practice, my devotion is telling the truth about myself. It's for me. And then I put it out there on social media and I realized, oh, it's actually helpful to other people too. It's not that I don't care about other people. I only care about me. But that, but that's how it started, right? It just started as, like, the only way that I'm going to break through this, you know, deep, deep conditioning is to move the needle in the other direction over and over and over again. And so it became kind of my daily practice to sort of in the morning say, all right, what's going on? And to just blurt it out, you know, with as much honesty as I could muster, which was pretty honest. And then often I would have this like pang of like, oh shit, did I just say that out loud? You know? Um, But then my practice was like, don't take it down. You know, if it was messy or you messed up the words or the thing that you said feels a little vulnerable, don't take it down. And so my sort of my tolerance for honesty has shifted. You know, I don't know if you've if you've experienced this where it was like, oh, no, I'm really worried what people will think. And now it's kind of it's just out there, you know, and I and I'm much more used to it. And now it feels so much easier to just sort of say, yeah, like I now actually it would be work to lie. (laughs) Now I would have to kind of think about it if I wanted to like curate or lie rather than before I would have to think about it. If I was going to be like, what's really true and what's really honest. Now it's kind of the other way around, which feels really, really good. Yeah. On on the flip side of that, I've gotten a lot better at that. But one thing I used to lie a lot too, all the time. I I, I just, I grew up hopefully by saying that someone can recognize why they lie. I think it's it's useful in understanding why you lie in the first place that I could not accept my life so extremely. I was, you know, I grew up overweight, unpopular. I had severe health issues. So I couldn't breathe a lot. Eggs everywhere. I, I had a, such a hard time accepting that reality that I had to lie to people around me to seem cool. That the only way I could fit in and, and seem somewhat likable was to lie about what I've done. Because then I was given 
um, validation. So I trained my mind to lie because who I, who I was, I couldn't accept. So one thing I can get very hard on myself for now is I think the more we can, again, going back to original uh, point a while ago that, that divinity is in truth, the more I'm honest with myself, the more I can be honest with others. It's just, it's just a reflection. What I'm saying is that because I'm so hard about being honest in the truth, when I catch myself slightly exaggerating or saying one tiny thing or a white lie, I get so pissed at myself. Like I truly get really, really angry at myself whenever I, I say one one tiny exaggeration in a story. What I'm saying that is that as humans, we actually lie a fuck ton. Like this is the smallest, the mm. smallest things. Like embellishing a story a tiny bit, saying if our partner asks us how we're feeling, changing a tiny bit, and I get so hard on myself in, in a certain way. How, how's that been for you? Are you are you just completely honest all the time? Do you catch yourself saying little things every now and then? How do you treat yourself when you kind of catch yourself exaggerating a little bit? Oh, I catch myself in stuff all the time, not just lying, right? I catch myself in, um, I notice uh, undesirable things in myself constantly, constantly. Oh, I did that again, you know. But the difference is, I think that 99% of the work is in the noticing. Yeah. So the fact that you're like, oh, I just exaggerated that. So the way that I shift it is I say, wow, good job. I noticed. So I don't move towards the shame story. I actually say it's more valuable and important that I noticed this thing that I did, which by the way, I will notice for the rest of my life because we will never get to that place of perfect refinement. I will be noticing these things about myself for the rest of my life. And the shame does not help me. The curiosity and the sort of reinforcement of rather than, oh, I'm so mad at myself for doing this. Wow. I'm so proud of myself for noticing because it's that noticing that helps us create more clarity and more truth. And so every time I see something in myself that is kind of undesirable, I really, really try to move away from the shame story and really move towards the, oh, interesting, That's that thing is still there. Interesting, that thing that's been such a strong draw for me, such a strong pull on me. Oh, I see you. You're still there. Hmm. Okay. There's still, there's still, there's still something happening over there. There's still something to resolve. So it's this place of sort of deep curiosity, deep curiosity. That sort of, I'm hope I'm trying to get to rule the show, rule the show in my mind, rather than this shame deciding good and bad. It's just like an open curiosity where it's like, oh, interesting, interesting. That's coming up again. I thought, yeah. I thought we were done with that. I guess not. I guess we're not done with that. There you yeah. are again. You know, and then sometimes I'm like, I'm so bored of you already. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so bored of you, self doubt. But there you are again. All right, it is what it is. Yeah. What what drives the change for you? Because I hear you and I agree, but then once that awareness pops in, in my experience from my own psyche, I don't know if it's the same for other people. I kind of have to figure out a, a drive to change the behavior, right? If I notice myself exaggerating or lying, I have to do something to shift the the, the behavior. But in the past, I'd come from shame. Like, I, I, I cannot be this person anymore. I can't do this. Blah, blah, blah. So what, what outside of the awareness, right? I do agree with you. Almost all the work and the change starts with you noticing the behavior. What drives you to shift it? Yeah. So, so it's like there's so many levels of awareness, right? So it's like an awareness of the behavior. And then there's an awareness of the shame. Oh, interesting. I move right to shame. Oh, I see you part of me that doesn't want to be that person anymore, that wants to move myself and improve myself. 
I see you. And so it's like we catch ourselves on many levels of the story and we get to bring that same methodology of curiosity and awareness to every level of it. And so if we start to say, oh, I'm aware that I'm doing this, shame comes up. Oh, interesting. I'm aware shame comes up. Shame, what do you have to tell me? What's that about? What's under that story? That's where we start to heal it. Not when we, when, not when we decide, okay, I'm going to embrace the awareness part of it. And even the shame part coming up, I'm going to shame the shame. I'm going to try and get rid of that. Like, no, 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 let's embrace that part of it too. Let's embrace the shame and what that has to tell us and the fact that it came up again. And let's learn from that. And let's heal it all the way up the chain so that we can say, I don't need to, I don't need to force you into submission. I don't need to force any part of myself into submission. I can unravel, understand, embrace and create clarity around all of these truths by letting them all be true all the way up the chain. And that's when they start to soften. So it's this idea of rather than using a sledgehammer, we're kind of trying to soften it rather than hit it out of the way. And then over time, it does start to soften and start to say, oh, shame, I see you coming up again. I understand. I understand why you're coming up, but I'm not now going to add another layer of shame on top of that shame. I'm not going to try and not just get rid of the original thing I did. I'm also not going to try and get rid of the shame on top of it. I just try to understand you with curiosity. I'm, I'm here for all of it. I'm willing to see all of it for what it is. Yeah. What I'm noticing in you is this deep patience in the process of change. This, this non-urgency or rushing to immediately fix something. That brings me to another quote of yours I'd love to unpack is that uh, when we come to the end of our lives, I think we will realize that all of this urgency stole our lives away. What, why is that the case, you think? You know, because if you think about this idea of truth, the way things are, um, again, what we've been trained to do is to move forward with our mind on a linear basis and be very proactive and active. And what truth is inviting us to do is to go in the other direction, to actually be receiving of and to listen, not to do, but to listen. And so the more we try hard, the more we look for something, the less we find it, the more we kind of can just Wait, ask, listen, be open, notice, be in awareness. That's where the clarity comes in. And so it's not even a, a, a value judgment of listening versus doing. It's just, for me, the way that I found has worked the best. And involved in that is a lot of trust. There's a lot of trust that in some way it's a little out of our hands, that we have to just sit and wait for it to come to us. And when it is ready to, it will. And that the timeline of our life and what we can receive and learn and know in our life uh, isn't entirely up to us. Uh, I think that there's uh, intention of inquiry 
but the harder we try and the more we grasp, I think the less we see clearly. That can be applied to other pursuits beyond your intellectual or in your internal journey. It can be applied to uh, your your career or you know, finding your partner. That there's this this uh, egoistic urgency for everything to work out right now. I, I definitely that's been the biggest work in myself is you know needing the manifestation. You know, I have my own issues with that. I don't know if you do too. Like I'll get trapped in like this manifesting thing of like, if this thing doesn't happen right now, and I have to, I have to basically like psyche, psych myself out to not be who I am in order to access the frequency of these thought patterns of who I need to be. And I like want an urgency and rush it. And for a romantic partner, it'd be like, I have to think this way to attract this person right now. That a lot of this manifestation stuff, we, we lose the process of being who we are right now to get that thing, right? I think that once you find, you know, I, I found someone recently romantically that I didn't think I would. And that actually was happened because I gave myself space to clear who I had to be to find that person. Before I was like ignoring who I was and having all these thoughts to just be that frequency or be that thing in the future. It was fucking me up. And why I'm bouncing it off what you said is that the, the manifestation is, it defines what you say. It's just this urgency to not be where we are. I don't know if, I, if you feel yeah. the same way about that. It's a hot take, but I, 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 this, I've been thinking about I, I that. I do. Recently. I do. I have a lot. I, I have a lot of thoughts on it. Um, I, I think there's some aspects of it and concepts that are interesting. And But the the part that is tricky is the idea that we have to know in order to get from point A to point B, assuming that point A is where we are and point B is a place that is desirable to us, that feeds our soul, that feeds into who we are, and that is like the life we want to create for ourselves. That before we start that journey, we have to know what point B is. Yeah. I think the journey of life is what gets us to point B, but we can't do it without all the little steps along the way. And so the process is, what is the life we want to build for ourselves in terms of how do we want to feel in that life? Who do we want to be surrounded by? Are our needs being met? Are our wants being met? Do we feel alive creatively? And to pursue that, point B might not be what you think you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Point B might look different if you're really doing the work of discovering who you are, what you want, what you're interested in. And so the problem is if we decide that we can't start on this journey of creating the life that we want for ourselves without knowing what point B is, we can't really fully know that until we've gone on the journey, but we're expecting to know it before we start. And so probably the thing we're looking for isn't quite the thing we actually will end up wanting. And that's, I think, where people get, people get messed up. And so what I'll say to people is embrace the unknown. You don't know where the journey will take you, which is hard. <laughs> you know, people don't like the unknown. People like certainty. That's a whole, that's a whole other conversation and ask yourself, I I work with a lot of women my age and I ask yourself three questions. How do I feel? What do I want? And what do I need? Ask yourself that over and over and over again, discover who you are. And then your next step will become clear to you. And you might end up at a point B that is exactly the life that you want based on knowing, knowing yourself deeply, 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 that could surprise you. Yeah, it's such a good point. I think I often think about this concept of the North Star. I think we each have a North Star, something we look towards, this guiding value or principle to, to for this road ahead of us. And for for most people and, and men, especially for me, it was you know, fame, power, wealth, 
woman. So like that's like North Star, right? Like this playboy, whatever maybe. And that mm-hmm. can work. And I got egoistically motivated to do certain things to get there. But when it when the North Star shifted to becoming authentic, most authentic version of me, that's my North Star now. The North Star is how can I unpack what's not true in myself to become the most authentic me. That stuff actually came faster. And I didn't even want it in that way. But the more you actually unpack your authenticity as as a metric, the more what's meant for you is actually going to come your way. So ultimately, if we were to manifest something, to me, the ultimate manifestation hack is to just prioritize becoming you. That's the ultimate yeah. key. It's not that car or that money or that woman or that partner. It's becoming you. That's a, that's a, that's a North Star. Has that been true for yeah. you? Yeah, for sure. I, I, you know, I have a lot of friends in this sort of mental health healing work and a friend of mine I was speaking to actually on my birthday. And um, she said, the only work you have in your life is to be you is to be more of you, become even more of yourself than you already are. And the the work, the vehicles for that work will become clear to you over time. But that's actually the central work because every expression of that is only as good as the integrity of that authentic intention. And so that's kind of how I think about my work. And maybe it'll be Maybe it comes in the form of a book or maybe it comes in the form of a course or maybe it comes in the form of, I don't even know and I don't need to know. Um, But that work is always happening constantly alongside any expression of that work in the world that I do. And um, so, yeah, I I agree. That's, that's it. And, and with that, all, all the right things come to you. Maybe not all the things, you know, but all the right things will come to you. Yeah, and, and I feel this dedication to authenticity in you because of your degree to be vulnerable. I think that's what people also need to understand, that your degree to be vulnerable as a person is what dictates your authenticity, right? Because it, it's, to be authentic, you have to own all of you. If you can't be, a, if you can't be vulnerable, yeah. you can't own all of you. So vulnerability is actually the, the, the bravest thing to do to become authentic. So I just wanted to, to thank you for honoring that vulnerability and, and coming on here and sharing all your, your wisdom. I really appreciate it. Where can people find you and get to know your, your work if they are curious? Yeah. So um, on Instagram, I'm just at Vanessa Cornell and I do my women's groups through Nushu. Uh, Instagram, it's at Nushu, N-U-S-H-U and online Nushu.com. Awesome. What are your women's groups focus on? What, what's like your main thing you try and work through? Yeah. So, so honestly, they're just a place where you get to be vulnerable and show up authentically. And so People run different groups with different themes, but that is the core central focus, Uh, a place where you're not going to get any advice. You're not going to get any teaching. You're just going to have a safe space that's structured in a way that's safe to be able to share what's on your mind and in your heart. So I do groups and then I train people to facilitate groups. And so people might facilitate groups for moms or for older people or for specific groups of people. But the premise is all the same. It's a place where you get to show up um, and just be honest and authentic and expect that from other people. Um, and to me, it's been the most powerful modality that for healing that I've seen. Um, of all the ones I explored, this is why I put my energy into it. Um, I think it's grossly underutilized and incredibly powerful. Oh, for sure. It's amazing you're doing that. I think that's what healed me, is I think when you're seen in your shame, it, it, it vanishes. If you're to speak yeah. about your vulnerabilities, the things you're ashamed of in a group of, especially women, or for me, men, um, that yeah. connection, that non-judgment, can really vaporize itself. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Of course. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. 
please make sure to subscribe to the podcast as well as rate and review. Thank you for listening.